Hello, everybody. It's David Knight. It's the OK Boomer Show. And wow, what a what a set of guests we have today. So our regular John McLean from Sydney, Australia. John, good morning over there. How are you? Uh, good morning, Dave. Good. Thank you. I've had my coffee. Excited to uh, to be a part of today. You bet. And our special guest wearing what we love to wear in Hawaii, Mr. Bob Babbitt from California. Uh, Bob, welcome to the OK Boomer Show. And it's great to get the three of us back together, even virtually, right? I love it. I think either in Kona or at our Endurance Award at SeaWorld, one of those spots were all three together. John was actually out here. We did his first 5K together when he ran, when he walked the Carlsbad 5000 when he was walking again. And that was a huge story when, when, I think this book had just come out. <clears throat> That's it. How far can you go? And so speaking of books, it's like you have a book, I have a book. The common theme is they're both from John McLean. So exactly, we're That's part of the change of constant challenge. But by way of introduction, Bob Babbitt, founder of Competitor Magazine, compa uh, founder of CAF, which is the Challenged Athlete Foundation. We'll spend a lot of time there. Uh, founder of the Ironman Hall of Fame, which John is uh, part of. Uh, founder of Triathlete uh, Hall of Fame and uh, Muddy Buddy, and and probably the list goes on. I just I got writer's cramp writing out all these guys' accomplishments. <laughs> but Bob, you, you are so much fun. You're such a great kind of galvanizer of people, and all, all this stuff that you've done is just celebrating human accomplishment and shining a light on just ex extraordinary, you know, people. Um, even the challenge, right? So I want I do want to spend a lot about challenge athlete foundation but how did you how did you meet john what was your first recollection of mr mclean well john came over to kona in 95 right i think it was 95 96 were the first two years that john came over and at that point and people don't remember this but wheelchairs had not been allowed to participate at the ironman world championship or at any ironman races and not in that many triathlons because most race directors had no idea what to do with somebody who was paralyzed, you know, how did they do the race? And John, uh, Dr. John Franks from LA, who was a chiropractor came over in 1994 and he tried to finish the Ironman using swimming, using a hand cycle and using a racing chair. And in 94, he missed the bike cutoff time. And I think John will agree with this. At the beginning, people were saying, well, these guys are in wheelchairs. We should change the time cutoffs. And uh, people like John McClain and even Don, Dr. John Franks were like, no, we want to do this race like everybody else. Right. If we don't make the bike cutoff time, we don't do the marathon. We're, we don't, are not an official finisher. Even though we know once we get off the bike, using a racing chair, we're going to go fast enough to make the 17-hour cutoff time. <clears throat> yeah, that so one-and-a-half-hour marathon that John does is a pretty fast exactly. time for, any, for anybody. Right? <laughs> John Franks didn't finish in 94. And then he missed the bike cutoff time. John McLean comes over in 95 and doesn't make the cutoff time. And then in 96, same thing. But I think either both years or one of those years, John went and did the marathon just to show that it can be done by someone in a wheelchair. And then in 97, John changed everything by making all the cutoff times. And you know, I, I have sort of a list of the great moments in endurance sports. And John's moment is there because he was the first and cycle wheelchair athlete to finish the Ironman World Championship. And that showed what could be accomplished. And when John is on national television in the US finishing that race, there's a lot of people who've told me they were in a hospital bed and they didn't know where their life was gonna go. 
And next thing you know, they realize they can do a 5K. They can push around the block. So John led to so many more. And what he really led to was this revolution in hand, in hand cycle triathlon because the following year, David Bailey, former motocross world champion, and Carlos Maleta, a Navy SEAL who had been paralyzed when he was shot in the back, they started a three-year trilogy of racing in Kona where Carlos won the first two years, David won the third year. But the rivalry between those two was equivalent to Dave Scott, Mark Allen, Paul Nibby Frazier, and uh, Aaron Baker. And what was cool about it was, to me, and I think to John as well, the disability disappeared. It was two great athletes who wanted to kick the other guy's ass, period, end of story. And the yeah. chair and the disability yeah. didn't matter. That's what we've always wanted, right? Equal playing field. Go out there and do whatever you want to do and don't let anything get in your way and don't let anybody tell you no. Well, I just got goosebumps when you said that, Bob, about, you know, John's on your short list of like great endurance um, events. I can remember I was obviously privileged to do John's kind of induction speech to the Hall of Fame. And I had a rule with John that if I come into Kona, I have to do the race. Right. So. You know, I was unprepared and, and uh, you know, as usual, I was probably the last athlete into the village and Lou Friedland through Gatorade obviously got, you know, got me a slot because of corporate sponsorship stuff. And so I'd done the race that day. I was feeling a bit butchered and it was at the event and there was uh, Mr. Bailey and Melina and all those guys and John and I are kind of, you know, getting ready for the event and we're talking about John's time and I'm like... <clears throat> I said, like, I don't even know if I beat John or I didn't beat John today. Like, I don't even know what your time was. And I said to John, what's your, what did you finish Kona in? And he goes, like, I don't know. And Bailey goes, I remember it like a Swiss clock. He goes, it was 12, 24, 27. And I'm like, shit, he beat me again. <laughs> so I think I was like, I think I was like 12, 26. So like, as usual, John beat me by about a minute and a half. So it was, it was hilarious. What I love about it. When Carlos, the year after John, Carlos went 10.55. And what was memorable about that was at the year before, people were wondering if a wheelchair athlete could finish Kona. And when Carlos went 10.55, that would have won the first two races overall in 78 right. and 79 and That's beat great. every other able-bodied athlete. That was a statement, and it started with John McClain. Yeah. And, and Bob, what's the... um. What's the record now? I think there was a, a wheelchair or paratriathlete that won a gold medal at the games and then like really Alex, lowered the time. Alex Zanardi, I think, is under, he's right at nine or under nine, something wow. ridiculous. But the wow. deal is, you know, and again, there's, as you know, there's long seat, there's kneelers, there's different levels of, of, of hand cycles. And the rules are you need to use a long seat. So it's in terms of the, the, the time that a long seat has gone, I think it's like 940 or something like that. Yeah. I heard, so. in, I heard a couple of years ago that one of the guys went top 50. And I think Very this guy, anyway, well, so yeah. you can see the evolution of, um, to your point, you know, can a wheelchair athlete complete the course? And now it's like finishing in the top 50. So they've come a very long way. Well, and think about the equipment. How heavy was your hand cycle? Probably uh, it was 40 pounds. It was 40 pounds. Yeah, it was made oh, out of steel. It was called a Freedom Rider. We used to meet in the middle with a cotter pin. Uh, old school. Not dissimilar yeah. to your first police bike, which uh, I, I think you bought. Is that right? I had, I had, can you share that story, Bob? Because let, let's get a bit of uh, an insight from you in the sport. How did, um, how did all that kick off? How did you get introduced to the sport? Well, I read about this thing called the Ironman in 1979. 
So the first, the Ironman started in 78, and then the second year of the event in 79, um, uh, Sports Illustrated, which was sort of the Bible for anybody in the U.S. That thing came out every Thursday, and we read it religiously. And it was an eight-page article on this thing called the Ironman. And remember, there was only 15 starters and 12 finishers in both 78 and 79. This picture behind me is actually the start of the 79 Ironman, and that's the whole field, right? That's everybody. <laughs> and, it, and what was interesting about 79 was first, in 78, there was no women. And in 79, Lynn Lemaire came and made a statement because she rode her way in the second place during the during a bike ride and ended up finishing fifth out of the 12 finishers. Wow. So right wow. away, you knew women would be a factor and would be an equal playing <laughs> field with, with the men. So when I read about the Tom Warren was a guy who won in 79 and there was an eight page feature and Tom owned a tavern here in San Diego. Notice how everything that we're connected to is beer is somehow part of that world, right? So Tom owned a tavern and he also put on an event called the Tug Swim Run Swim. And the Tug Swim Run Swim was a half mile swim around this place called Crystal Pier in San Diego, five mile run on the beach and then you swim around the pier again. And he'd get big crowds for this event. And myself and my roommate at the time, a guy named Ned Overend, who would go on to become world mountain bike champion. But at that point, mountain bikes hadn't been invented yet. And Ned was a mechanic at San Diego Suzuki. And the two of us met rock climbing in Mexico. And we got a, a little apartment here in San Diego. We read about this article. And we read about Tom Warren, decided we had done the Tugs event. We'll find this guy, Tommy, because it's not like you go online and find out about this thing. Yeah, how, well, this where is before you, cell phones, right? This was uh, before. Yeah, this is when you basically use carrier pigeons. So <laughs> we, we, I called this guy Tom Warren up and say, hey, Mr. Warren, sir, we'd like to find out about this Iron Man thing. And he said, no problem, Babbitt, come to my office. It's at the, it's on the west side of the street, just south of Crystal Pier in Sandy, in Pacific Beach. We go down there. There's no buildings where he's, he directed us to. There's a motorhome in a parking spot with a bike on the back and running shoes tied around the side view mirror and a bike and a uh, paddleboard on top. And he, I put my head in and he's like, Babbitt, welcome to my office. He would had a payphone behind him. He'd call and order tortilla chips and, and tortillas and everything he needed for the bar. And then he'd go for a five mile run every single morning on the boardwalk. He'd ride to Oceanside and back like 50, 60 miles. And he'd paddle out in the ocean. I mean, he was an Ironman guy before the event even was created. Right. So we take Tommy and there's a bar right behind his, right behind where his motorhome is. And we go in there to, to ask him, how do you do this thing? And he goes, he, he's talking to us about how to do it. And he's drinking beer. It's 930 in the morning. <laughs> he's drinking beer. So you realize right away that our guy is a little eccentric. Right. So which most of the guys in the early days were. So. He said, Mr. Warren, sir, uh, tell me more about, you know, what do you do? How do you ride the bike? What do you, how much training do you do? And every time he would be talking to us, he had a magic marker and he'd be making marks on his arm. And we're like, again, remember, he's our, he's the guy who's going to show us how to do this thing. So he's our mentor. So, Mr. Warren, sir, what's the deal with the magic marker? He's like, I have a little bit of a drinking problem. I make a mark on my arm every time I have a beer. And when I get to my sleeve, I go home. <laughs> at that point, we really knew the guy was a little out there. That's called, today out. that's called carbo loading. And, and exactly. they've invented Gatorade now, so you don't need to like do the beers. Right? Yeah. He's got a bike mounted in a, on a trainer in a sauna in his house, right? 
and he's riding five hours a day in the sauna. So anyways, we come out of that and we're like, well, first we got to get bicycles. So again, we don't know what to get. So we, we get, uh, we go to police auction. My bike costs 75 bucks. The whole back end had been burned in a fire. And I uh, had a fuzzy raccoon seat cover had the foam grips on the front, had a Radio Shack radio mounted, bungee corded on the front so I could listen to music. More importantly, I had pannier sleeping bag and tent on the back of the bike because I thought you swam 2.4, rode 56, camped out, rode back the next day and ran the marathon. I had no idea. It was like a one day thing. It was a little bit of a freaking surprise when we found that out. Well, now we got bikes and we're swimming in a 120 length in a mile condo pool uh, here at Mission Valley. So we weren't quite ready for big ocean stuff. We get over to Oahu and by this time, because of Sports Illustrated, there's 108 of us. It would gone from 15 to 108. So we're there to have the pre-race meeting the night before the race. And the original race, 2.4 mile Waikiki rough water swim, 112 mile bike ride around Oahu, 26.2 mile Honolulu Marathon. Night before the race, Ned and I are standing on the deck of the Grand Otani Hotel. The waves are breaking 10 feet up on the wall of the hotel. This is where we're supposed to swim in the morning. We're, we basically look at each other and goes, it's nice knowing you. We're going to die tomorrow morning. This is our last night on earth. We better have more beer. So the race director brings us in and he goes, listen, after the article in Sports Illustrated, ABC got interested and they called me the other day and said, we would like to shoot your event because we're here to shoot cliff diving on Sunday. So we want to shoot your Ironman thing tomorrow. And he realized this was a great thing. But the problem was the year before the surf was so big and this year was so big, he had to move the event a day to Sunday, which they couldn't shoot because they'd be shooting cliff diving. Right. So what he did, told us is, hey, guys, I have an opportunity to get ABC. I've got to move the swim to Alamoana Channel so that we can do the race tomorrow. And of course, you got Dave Scott in there and all these Navy SEALs going, what a pussy event. You can't change a swim. You can't put it in a bay. And Ned and I are like, Thank God we're going to live. <laughs> I can't believe this. So we get out there the next day and you, you have your own support crew. There was no aid stations. There was, you, you had to get a crew and I was a school teacher. So one of the kids I taught, her dad lived over on Oahu and he shows up with his Fiat convertible with his two girlfriends. And I give him my 50 loaves of Hawaiian sweetbread. Who knew what to eat and Gatorade. I did have Gatorade. Hawaiian sweetbread and Gatorade was going to be my nutrition all day. Awesome. Long. Awesome. Yeah. So anyways, I start to swim. Oh my God, you're somewhere. I'm doing the swim and you go down and back and on my way back and I'm staying as shallow as humanly possible. As I'm coming my way back for the first lap, and it was going to be four lengths, there's this guy named John Huckabee. He was 59 years old, which back then was ancient to be doing this thing. And his claim to fame, he'd run the Athens marathon back to back to back in one day, which is awesome. The problem is he couldn't swim at all had no idea how to swim so and he's the only one there with sponsors he was sponsored acme meets he had all these different sponsors i'm swimming back on the second leg and basically run into john who is walking the swim and moving his hands because the water is so shallow and he's i tell people he's the only guy in the history of iron man to get blisters on his feet during the swim portion of the iron man world championship so i get out of the water and I had a wait. There was a, a family that was in the shower, right? Because we're just in the Alamoana Park there. And then I get on my bike and I'm, I'm 
tuning in my radio and I've, oh, I've got flat proof tires on the car bike because I have no idea how to change a tire. So I had these things waxed on the, the front on the uh, wheels so that I wouldn't get a flat. I'm riding along and I've got a long sleeve cotton shirt, right? Really bright. And I'm riding along and I get to about mile 25 and there's my crew on the side of the road, a handoff like Tour de France. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. I'm getting a handoff. Big Mac fries and a Coke at mile 25. It was awesome. <laughs> then at, at mile 90, I got a root beer snow cone. And then I come rolling in to the, to basically Alamoana Park where they're doing the transition. And my crew's there and they've got a bamboo mat and a boom box. And they're like, how about a massage? And I'm like, my neck is so stiff. So I laid down for 45 minute massage between the bike and the run, then get up, and I'm staggering through Waikiki and they had a rule back then. They had scales along the bike ride and the run and you had to get off your bike and then during the run, if you lost 5% of your body weight, they pulled you out of the race. Where the science came from, I have no idea, but that was a rule. So I, I get on the scale, this when we started the run and I get to about mile five and I'm drinking Gatorade and eating Hawaiian sweet bread. I got my belly distended. And I get on the scale at mile five and the guy's like, oh, can you give me that again? This guy gained five pounds. I can't gain weight doing this thing. <laughs> and in the meantime, Ned's girlfriend, Pam, who became his wife, was crewing for him and lost him two miles into the bike, found him at mile 95. He's drinking out of sprinklers in the median strip. And then I'm running along and I get to about mile 20 and we're climbing up Diamond Head and my crew in their little Fiat convertibles right behind me with their lights on. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the coolest thing I've ever done. I thought this was gonna take me two days. I'm gonna finish this thing in one day. So as I'm dropping down in the Kapilani Park, I started thinking there's gonna be so much cool stuff at the finish line. There's gonna be cheerleaders, there's gonna be bands. I can't wait to see what they got for us. I come rolling in the park, there's a light bulb above me. There's a chalk line across the road. And as I slow down, I hear this voice in the darkness. I'm like, hey, you. I'm like, yeah. You in the race? Yeah. You're done. There was one guy doing one-arm push-ups in the park. No Mike Riley. No nothing. There's nothing going on. And meanwhile, Ned, when I get back to the hotel, Ned's, we share in a room, and he rolls over, and his back is like beet red. And he just rolled over and goes, I didn't see her all day long. It was like, oh. But it was like, I knew when I finished that race that it had changed my life. I knew from then on, I had a business card that told me I could do anything because I had no idea I could do that. And yeah. all of a sudden, I finished this, the most ridiculous thing I'd ever undertaken and completed it. And I always tell people, they ask, you, know, you did the Ironman, what's your best race? I said, I was you know, top 60 at the Ironman World Championship. They don't know there's only 108 of us, right? They have no idea. <laughs> you, was, you missed that voice going, you are an Iron Man from Mike exactly. Riley. I mean, that's yeah, I never words. got that, right? Yeah. Actually, I never did get that because I, I think my last race there was like 86 or something before Mike Riley was even doing the announcing. Wow. So, but Iron Man led to everything. I left teaching and went to work for a guy named Mike Plant, who had a magazine called Running and Triathlon News and became the LA editor for him. And he let me do whatever I wanted to do. You know, he said, listen, just if you're creating, if you're creating passion, if people are writing because they're upset that you created the old fart of the month or you 
you have the uh, the Reverend Campagnola minister triathlism, and he's he's saying something totally inappropriate, or the the running the running wino. Those were all characters that I was writing in the magazine, and he didn't care. He was like, "Listen, if people are vanilla and they don't write anything to you, then they don't care. If they care enough to write positive or negative, that's what you want." So that yeah. became my mantra when we created Competitor Magazine: is articles that people will react to, not just an article that says, "This is John McClain made a move at this mile or this mile." It's like, "Here's John McClain's story." that happened at this race. This is the best story that happened at this race. And you know, that led to competitor. We created, we created competitor. We were underneath 20,000 pounds of bike racks in 200 square feet in some guy's garage. And we were paying $200 a month and we had no idea. Some friends had given us $17,000 to start our own magazine. We had no idea what we were doing. And that led to us uh, having 11 editions of competitor magazine and half a million circulation around the country. And eventually in 2008, we, we are bought by a private equity firm called Falconhead that bought and became the competitor group, which was, I was very proud of. We had 22 employees when we sold. Next thing I know, we had 500 employees and we're in 50,000 square feet of offices. We own the Rock and Roll Marathon Series, Triathlete Magazine, wow. Fellow News wow. Magazine, um, My Muddy Buddy Series. And uh, it, it became, you know, we had a half women's half marathon series. So it's it became a big entity that eventually sold to Ironman. Wow. Bob, Bob can we a... transition? Yeah. Sorry, Doug. Can we transition now into CAF, and, uh, Jim McLaren? Sure. And let's talk about the origins of that and then where that is today and the impact that that's made to many. Would you, would you share that with us? Sure. So um, we were at Ironman in the late 80s, and I met a guy named Jim McLaren. And Jim had been a football player at Yale a 300-pound offensive lineman. And in 1985, he was taking acting classes in New York, was on his motorcycle, when he was hit by a New York City bus. Thrown 90 feet in the air, dead on arrival. They chalked his body on the ground. He lived, ended up losing his lower left leg. And he came back from that, similar to what John's talking about with his 40-pound bike. We're talking about a walking leg. He ran a 316 marathon, and then he went to Kona and went 1042 on a walking leg. Right, changing perceptions, what anybody can do with a prosthetic. So here he is traveling the world. Everybody knew who he was. He was the one-legged guy. People were changing their perception from, we don't want to be supporting people with disabilities to, wait a second, that person in the wheelchair, that person missing a leg, if there's 20 people in the room, I notice that person. That's the person I want to sponsor because they're giving me notoriety. They're, people are aware of them and they usually have pretty cool stories. So Jimmy was traveling the world, sponsored by Budweiser and Profile by Design. And then in 93, he was racing in Mission Viejo here in Southern California. A van goes through a closed intersection, hits the back of his bike, propels him headfirst into a pole, becomes a quad. His early amputee becomes a quadriplegic. And at that point, myself and two close friends, Rick Kozlowski, who was a race director here in San Diego, and Jeffrey Essekow, who worked for the Tinley Company that sponsored Jimmy, the three of us got together and the goal was to put on a little triathlon at La Jolla Cove. And we wanted to raise $25,000 to buy Jimmy a van with hand controls. From the wheelchair athletes I had interviewed over time at Competitor, the one thing I'd hear from them when I'd ask, what's the worst part about being paralyzed? It was invariably, I'm 30 years old, here come mom and dad back in my life. No sense of self or independence. So the goal was this, to buy this van for Jimmy to give him independence. We raised 49, 
we thought our job was done. Three amputee women who came out and did a relay in support of Jimmy, they came up to us and they go, you know, it's great what you did for Jimmy. He got us into endurance. But did you know if you get injured, your health insurance will cover a walking around leg or an everyday wheelchair? Nothing to do with sport is covered by insurance because, because it's considered a luxury item. And you guys both know sport is a huge part of who we are and what we do. Without yeah. sport, yeah. you're not through, truly living. So at that point, we got our 5-1-3-C. It became the Challenge Athletes Foundation. And now it's been 27 years. We have raised $123 million. We've sent out over 30,000 grants to athletes in 73 countries. And the part that hits me the most, 103 different sports. Wow. And we funded wow. grants for travel, training, and equipment. Uh, who knew there were 103 different sports? But, but that's the cool part is every day there's new sports coming up. It used to be wheelchair guys couldn't get down to the beach. Well, now they got mats to get people down to the beach. So now you got surfing and you've got swimming. And used to be that you couldn't go off road because wheelchairs couldn't go off road. Well, now they can't. So now you got, you know, you've got off road hand cycling. So it's every single day we're getting new sports. And just before COVID hit, we sent out 3,921 grants, totaling 5.9 million for athletes in 43 countries. And on, again, 103 different sports. So it's, it all started with Jim McLaren, but it's all about making sure that any challenged athlete, whatever their disability, whatever their challenge, that we're here to help them meet their dreams, whatever it happens to be. I had a guy on the, today, we started this Challenge Athletes Live where we've done 67 of these interviews. And one of the guys I was interviewing this morning, he was you know, working in the Navy with the Navy SEALs back in 2001, was on his motorcycle, paralyzed. And one of our CAF wheelchair guys came to see him in the hospital with former Al Kovac, another Navy SEAL, who was paralyzed in a parachute accident. And he's a quad and he said, he said to this guy, Craig, said to Craig, hey, listen, I'm a quad. You're a para. You have no excuse. Get your ass out there. And you know, next thing you know, he's mountain biking and doing anything he wants to do. And now he's he's trying to make the Paralympics and hand cycling in this next Paralympics. So it's our athletes have become a huge part of, of what we do because athletes like John, people see John, see people see Rudy Garcia Tolson or Emmanuel or any of our athletes, and they get hope from that. Right. One of my favorites and John knows Rudy, who's a double above knee amputee. And he came after not making the cutoff time in Hawaii. He tried to become first double above knee amputee to finish the Ironman World Championship. And when he rides a bike, he doesn't have quads or hamstrings. He just has glutes. So it's, you know, but he's a world class swimmer who's gone 232 for 200 IM. So and this this guy's world class swimmer. And uh, he's, he's a really, really he's run a sub six minute mile with double press, double above as a double above knee amputee. So we're waiting before Ironman Arizona starts six weeks after not making the cutoff time in Kona. And you think about Ironman Arizona is one of the first Ironmans to sell out because it's the ultimate oxymoron. People think it's an easy Ironman. They want to be an Ironman, but they want to do something that's flat and fast because they want to finish it, which totally understand. So probably 70% of that field was first timers. Now, if you're in the desert, it's cold and it's dark. People are, are, huddled up before the start of that race, questioning their life decisions. What the hell was I thinking? Why am I here? I can never do this. Then you see Rudy take his legs off. He's on his little stubbies and start walking through the crowd down to the swim. And it just started, it was totally organic. People were like, it's Rudy, 
it's Rudy. And they started chanting. They're like, Rudy, Rudy. And everybody wins. They see Rudy and any question that they had about their ability to do something disappears. Yeah. Rudy, if Rudy can do it, they can do it. If John McClain in the wheelchair can do this, what am I worried about? Right? So those people are cheering Rudy on. Rudy's giving them hope and inspiration. Everybody wins when we've got one of our challenge athletes at the starting line of any event. Well, we were, we had Wendy Ingram on last week and we were talking about calf where John, Wendy and I were like the trio. Um, and I still allege I was first out of the water, which is complete bullshit, but it sounded good at the time. Uh, but that was the weekend where we met Rudy as a young boy. Right. And yep. Robin Williams was there and, and, uh, you know, I, I think I've introduced Billy Davis to you, a buddy of mine that I met through mm-hmm. New York, through Achilles, uh, amputee from a motorbike accident. And Rudy's in New York now, too. So met Rudy at the New York triathlon like two years mm-hmm. ago when I was there helping Billy. But what a journey. I mean, again, you know, John's a huge inspiration, but he needs support from people like you. Right. He needs a platform and an audience and you know, ways to get the message across. And Iron Man just became a real natural kind of mm-hmm. way to amplify what is such an important message, right? There are no excuses, right? I yeah, always... no, the Iron Man's mantra is anything is possible, right. which is it goes way beyond sport. Right? It's yeah. Anything absolutely is possible. And if you think about those important moments throughout Iron Man history with, you know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, Dave Scott and Mark Allen and all these amazing races. But what put the Ironman on the map? What put Ironman on the map was this 22-year-old co-ed named Julie Moss with freckles. And as she collapsed while leading the race, people watching all over the country here in the U.S. are watching this happen. And I call it the, this was the first real reality TV. You watch this woman crawl and collapse and stand up and crawl and collapse. And people who are watching in Pittsburgh or Milwaukee or New York couldn't relate to Dave Scott finishing the 1980 Ironman winning and going and cooling down, right? He just did a 140 mile race. He should be laying on his back somewhere suffering. John Howard, three-time Olympian and Pan-American game gold medalist in 81. They weren't relatable, but this 22 year old with freckles who could be your daughter your girlfriend, your neighbor, she could be babysitting your kid. You could relate. So people are watching and they're thinking to themselves, this is stupid. This is the silliest thing I've ever seen. And then they watch her collapse on the finish line. And after she's been passed, so now she hasn't won the race, and puts her arm across the finish line. And they put a lay around her neck and take her off on a stretcher. And people forget ABC Wild World of Sports in those days they did three vignettes during a show. So they do ice dancing, they do roller derby, they do Ironman. So they go from Julie Moss on a stretcher being carried off to roller derby. And people have no idea if she's alive or dead. So <laughs> the phone lines at ABC lit up and they, people were calling from all over the country because they were worried about this young girl. So they had to fly Julie and Kathleen, a fellow 22-year-old co-ed who won the race, to New York to be on with the dean of ABC Wild World of Sports, Jim McKay, to assure the American public that this sport and this event doesn't kill people, right? (laughs) And that led, that finish led to the United States Triathlon Series, which started in June of 82. 
which led to them doing a second Ironman in 82 because the event had been in February. Well, now October is a better time to do it because people from all over the world can train for it. So the, they did two Ironmans in 82. And the people who were the poster people, poster athletes for the USTS series were Julie Moss and Kathleen McCartney. They were everyday people overcoming the odds, right? And that led to, you know, you've got um, Bill Carlson, who was a diabetic, who did Ironman in 83. And back then, he had to carry a pharmacy with him to do the <laughs> Ironman, right? Then, you, Pat Griscus was the first amputee to do the race. And then after that, you know, you got John McClain, the first wheelchair athlete, and Jim Howley in 96, as well, was the, the first guy with AIDS to do Ironman. So all of those moments changed, really changed the world because people watching at home were motivated and inspired by, the, by that next John McClain who was doing something that seriously was thought to be impossible. Yeah, I've always... And, um, sorry, sorry I was just going to say, I, you know, you mentioned it earlier, but truly crossing the Ironman finish line is life-changing, right? I think you get to feel like you've accomplished what you thought was impossible, and you just have this, I call it the post-Ironman, you know, like you just feel like unbeatable like there's nothing yeah. you can't do right and uh it's 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 such a dramatic life force and i think that's why you know it grew to such a phenomenon and, and you know you always have respect when you're out for a run you see somebody with a finishing hat iron man or a t-shirt and, and you want to get into conversation like what did you learn what did you do how many have you done i mean it's 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 just a great it's a great conversation piece john go ahead sorry i cut you off yeah, there's two bits, uh, Bob, to share. One was the young man who recently completed uh, the Florida Ironman with Down syndrome. Yeah. For me to yes. see that on the, on the social networks and just, again, goosebumps and be blown away by the fact that the human spirit just continues to be lifted up. And, you know, for me and you and Dave who have done Hawaii and to see this guy, you know, go through that whole process with his buddy, you know, in terms of the run bit. You know, just kept on bringing back those emotions of that anything really is possible and, and the world needs good stories to be inspired. And, and one of those other stories that comes to mind, which you're very much aware of, and you spoke about the evolution of uh, Iron Man in terms of, you know, my participation in the early days and where it's come to. And then there was an accident with uh, young Lauren Parker. So, you know, he, yep. I, I was riding a bike, I had my accident, Lauren, and she had got on the podium quite a few times, top 10, I think yep. top three for her age group. Um, and then I obviously wanted to make sure I could do all I, I could to help her. And then she said, you know, maybe I could go back to Kona. And I was in the hospital with her when she said those words. And then she said, I actually am going to go to Kona and I need you at yep. the finish line. So you can see how this perpetuating energy comes from Iron Man. And, and as you know, she's gone on to do a lot more than just dreaming about getting to Kona. She's now number one in the world in paratriathlon. So um, yes. can you share a little bit about uh, Lauren's story for those who are unfamiliar? Yeah, Lauren, this is uh, 2017. Lauren Parker was a pro and she was getting ready. She, she had been on the podium on the stage with Mike Riley and I in Kona. She was second uh, a couple years earlier at the Ironman World Championship in her 25, 29 year old age. Then she turned pro and that following year she, she did mainly shorter distance, 70.3. And then 2017, Australia was going to be her first Ironman. And that was like late April. So early on April 18th, 2017, she was out for a ride with her two friends and both tires flatted on her bike at the same time. And she went into a guardrail and was paralyzed from the waist down. And I had her on the radio show 
really within like a month and a half of that. And I said, Lauren, what do you want to do? And she goes, I want to get back into triathlon. Eventually I want to do Ironman again. I said, well, you need to start by being at our San Diego triathlon challenge. So we flew her here to San Diego. She had to check out of the hospital. She had to basically tell them I'm, I'm going home for the weekend and came over with her friend, Brad. And I think she thought we were bringing her over to be inspirational to our, she didn't really know anything about Challenge Athletics Foundation. And she came to our Friday night, we do this thing called Celebration of Abilities, and we have 700 people there. And we have 150 challenged athletes. And there's kids running and in wheelchairs and missing legs and visually impaired, they're all over the place. And when I was on stage, I told the audience Lauren's backstory and said, everybody in this room needs to help Lauren get back to where she wants to go. And just in unison, they all stood up and gave her a standing ovation. Wow. And Lauren was like looking at Brad going, they're here for me. And so the next thing, you know, we got her hand cycle racing chair. And within a year, she took a bronze at the Commonwealth Games within a year of her accident. And then she took uh, the world championship. She took a, a, a bronze. And then the following year, this last year, she wins a gold medal in the para tri. And then she became the first challenge athlete to be sponsored by the Bahrain 13 team and bought her own house, which she was so excited about. And is, you know, she struggles and, and John and I have chatted about this. She's got really bad spinal, spinal issues in terms of pain that she just can't get away from. And I've actually uh, tried to connect, connect her with Ken Ware to see if he can help with, with that pain. Um, but anyway, so Lauren is, she's so special and she's been amazing. Uh, she's been at, at every San Diego triathlon challenge since we bring her over here every year. And she's gone from being that person who's looking to get inspired to that person who's inspiring that next athlete who's been paralyzed. And she's reached out to a number of athletes. I've asked her a few different times. We had a, a woman named Christina Eastler in South Carolina who was run over by a truck and paralyzed age group athlete. And Lauren reached out to her right away just to let her know she was there and was there to help her in any way she needed help. So it's been, our athletes are very special that way. Yeah. And you're very special too, Bob. I mean, it wouldn't happen without you. Um, so really want to thank you on behalf of everybody that you've touched and certainly you touched John and my life um, in many ways. So I know we've been long on this story, Bob, you're an encyclopedia, man. Like do, what did you have for breakfast on May the 3rd, 1993? And, 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 and no, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Muffin. A winning formula. Yeah. Look guys, I want to tie this all back together and Bob, I'm hoping that we can get you back on here at another point. Um, just the stories that you have. And then one of the feedback that we had after Lou's story, we got one of uh, Lou shared on his uh, social media. You know, people don't know about early days of Iron Man, right? They don't know, you know, yeah. your story of, you know, Iron Man 3, right? And, you know, the, the sport is just changing people's lives everywhere, but it's just so important that we understand the roots and the beginnings, right, of how this has started and how this changed the world and importantly how it's led to other bigger things, right? Like CAF and like, you know, John's, John's trajectory and everybody that we've talked about. Um, so it's really sacred to me. So I feel really blessed and, and, and in a special place to have two guys like you share this story with the people that really need to know about it. And we're all just about 
inspiring people, right? And John's book, the change, you know, change, a constant challenge. And, you know, it's, it's about, it's about mapping your direction. It's about having the right mentors, right? Having the right mindset. Um, so these are really valid lessons that, you know, we, we naturally gravitate to, right? Having, surrounding ourselves with positive people, right? But it's about stories and, and just feel blessed that you've been able to share probably not even the tip of the iceberg with the stories that you have. Get into my my Shasta story. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just uh, quickly to, let's quickly talk because we talked about it before uh, with Will yeah. Farrell right doing the speech uh, where yeah. we were all at. Just give us that quick story because that was just right, hilarious. One, one of my uh, I was invited to do a thing called a ride and tie, the twenty eight mile race where it's two people and a horse. So one person starts on the horse and goes couple miles, ties the horse to a tree and starts running. The partner runs up and jumps on a horse and rides by his partner. You leapfrog for 28 miles. Right? What Sounds could possibly simple. go wrong? <laughs> yeah, what possibly can go wrong? The fact that I'd never ridden a horse before and they started the race with a shotgun. Besides that, everything was, was, was great. When I got to my horse's name was Shasta at about mile four, all of a sudden he had changed his name to lightning and was claw. He was doing this to the sky and he was like smoke coming out of both nostrils. I had to get on this thing's back and I'm on his back holding his mane as he's jumping over everybody. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a cool concept. You gotta lose the horse. I love the whole idea <laughs> back and forth. When I got to about mile 20, I'd run 17 miles. And at that point I'm thinking the horse has gotta be tired. So I'll just get on him and we'll walk in. Well, when I get to mile 17, they're loading Shasta into the back of this little horsey corral it's on the back of a truck. I'm like, where's he going? And the vet goes, his hooves are sore. I'm like, his hooves are sore. I've run 17 miles. What the hell? His hooves are sore. I had to run the last eight miles. And my mantra was, this is a cool concept. Got to lose a horse. Flash ahead. All of us are very fit after Ironman in October. Thanksgiving's coming up. I'm going to put on a ride and tie. This is before mountain bikes with what we call butt bikes. The bikes you'd get down at the, the boardwalk to ride along with, have the big seat on them. So I get a bunch of these bikes. We bring them out to this canyon. I've got Scott Tinley, Scott Molina, Mark Allen, all these guys who are very fit from Ironman, but don't want to do anything serious. I hide stuffed animals all over the canyon. It was you and a partner. It was a 12-mile ride and tie. And every piece, every stuffed animal you brought back was with time off your total time. And if you brought turkeys back, stuffed turkeys, those were 10 minutes off your time. And then we had a spam station. Every piece of spam you ate was worth time off your total time. So it's just a total... <laughs> crazy event and we did that thing you know no per, no entry fee 10 cans of food that we would donate to the local shelter and all of a sudden i'm getting 200 teams showing up on thanksgiving and east and i'm in a turkey outfit at thanksgiving and a bunny suit for easter so what happened in 1998 with competitor magazine i'm meeting with the president of brooks shoes and asking him about advertising and competitor and he goes listen i can't compete with a nike and adidas in terms of advertising but if you have an event of some sort, we would have be happy to get involved with a promotion of some sort. So I'm like, okay, we'll take my ride and tie, which is no permits, no nothing. We'll add some obstacles. So you start out on the bike and ride a mile on a mountain bike to my 25 foot inflatable with a cargo net up the front and a slide down the back, leave the bike, do the obstacle, start running. I run up, do the obstacle, grab the bike, ride by you. So it's leapfrog, which means I can wear a frog outfit. And then the last <laughs> obstacle, is a mud pit. You wait for your buddy at the mud pit. The two of you crawl through the, the mud pit together and go to the beer garden. It became Muddy Buddy 
And eventually we had 18 events around the country, 45,000 participants on an annual basis. And that all started because of a silly horse named Shasta. (laughs) (laughs) And if anybody can make sense of that, apart from let's go have some fun, let's push ourselves and get great people together to do crazy things, then uh, that's how great things start. So Bob, what, what a, what a pleasure that story is. Uh, John, how do you, how do you top that mate? Well, I want to come back to the question with Will Farrell. So, Bob, can you was talking about the awards, and yes. I was obviously honoured with David to to be a part of that. And you've obviously done the awards for many years. And then Will Farrell gets up on the stage. Can you kind of share what he had to say? Sure. He's a funny guy. Gary Kobat's a trainer in LA, and he trained Will Farrell and Jim Carrey and David James Elliott from a TV show called Jag. And they came to our San Diego Triathlon Challenge. And actually, Will ran, along with Jim Carrey, a 145 half marathon on a very hilly course. And he also, we ran Boston together. I was in my Elvis outfit. And, and he <laughs> dropped me early and ran 356 at Boston Marathon. So he was our Celebrity Athlete of the Year at our competitor magazine, Endurance Sports Awards. And so we bring Will up. And this is on YouTube. People can go check it out. Will Farrell, Endurance Sports Awards. He gets up and he's like, you know, I haven't won anything athletic awards since grammar school and listen you know uh, uh through this endurance world i've shaved parts of my body i've never thought i would shave i've <laughs> rashed in parts of my body and never thought i would rash then he stopped and took out a goo and he goes you know sometimes you got to fuel up in the middle of a, of a performance uh, i like chocolate uh, banana gets gives me to runs he says the mo- main thing that you guys got to know is you are the greatest athletes in the world and you don't get the credit you deserve. That was really cool coming yeah. from Will Ferrell. Yeah. And, you know, I've always found that, that the athletes like that or performers like that, they, they appreciate athletes like Robin Williams, love being with Scott Tinley and Dave Scott and Steve Hag. There's a camaraderie between, if you're world-class at something, you recognize world-class in something else. Will Ferrell yeah. could recognize that the athletes in that room, the 500 endurance athletes in that room were world-class. And they all knew, obviously, that Will was world-class. The first time he came on my show, on the radio show, um, the only movie he had done, Zoolander, and he had been Mustafa in Austin Powers. You know, it's like, I'm not quite dead yet. I'm badly burned, but I'm not quite dead yet. So we used to have him on the show and give him crap about, I can't believe Mustafa hasn't won an Academy Award yet for that role. You're, you're amazing. He goes, Hey, you guys are going to stop making fun of me because I got a movie coming out. I think it's going to be pretty good. And we're like, what's it called? He says, well, we haven't come up with a name yet. I think we're going to call it Old School. And so then he went from Old School to Elf to Talladega Nights to Anchorman. Uh, to, yes, to Anchorman. Those were his next four films, right? <laughs> so Will became this super, super, superstar, but always just the nicest guy. Yeah. Well, speaking of nice guys, I couldn't have had two nicest guys on the show. I think we're we're a little bit out of time, but um, wow, what a what a journey! I've got tears in my eyes. I've had goosebumps several times through this conversation, and uh, we will have more of these. And uh, John, it's up and up to you and I to get a few more of these uh, legendary folk on the show. So we have Greg Welch next week. Greg is uh, Aussie. Uh, Ironman world champion, inspirational guy. Um, so we're going to talk to him. And then, Bob, love you, appreciate you, and I know you'll help us get a few more. Maybe we can get Will Farrell on this show. He, w- he would be a laugh. I got um, to see if I can get him. 
universe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but look, this, this is about conversations. It's about story. It's about inspiration. All I would ask is that hopefully, you know, share this, subscribe to the channel, um, get this message out there. And if, and if you've liked it, um, you know, great. Hopefully we're changing lives one at a time. And uh, we're all here to support and uh, give somebody a shining light that says, look, the impossible is not impossible. Everything's possible out there. Um, and we've got... John is living example of that and many others. And the same, same with you, Bob. The things you've done, right, to, to go from a school teacher to where you are today is just truly magnificent. Um, and uh, you've impacted hundreds of thousands of lives out there. And, uh, hey, just really thank you for that. You're very welcome. I always tell when people ask, you know, what's the magic? And it's like, follow your passion. Just follow what you believe in. Don't let anybody tell you no. And I didn't know that 95% of all magazines go out of business in the first year. And I'm glad I didn't know that. We didn't know. We didn't know we were ignorant, but we followed our, we followed our passion. And yeah. that led to everything else. Just show us those bobbleheads before we go. So okay. you could, uh, we'll get these guys on the show at some point. But what do you got there? This is the Iron War bobblehead. Dave Scott, Mark Allen, 1989, the greatest race in Ironman history. Going into that race, Dave Scott had six wins. Mark Allen had been there six times and come up empty in 82. His derailleur fell off his bike in 83. He was fifth in 84. No, he was third in 84. He had a 13-minute lead, blew up. And then in um, 86, he lost. He came second. 87, had a five-minute lead, lost. 88, Dave didn't race. And Mark ended up uh, fifth with a couple of flats. And But... That's the way it should have been. If Mark was ever going to beat Dave, if he win the Ironman, he needed to beat Dave Scott to do it. In 89, I did an interview with Dave in March of that year and said, what do you think is going to happen? He goes, well, Molina had run a 302 marathon to win the Ironman the year before. He goes, someone runs 302 in October, they're going to be three miles down the road. Someone's going to run in the low 240s, and there's only two of us who can do it. And on race day, Dave Scott's course record was uh, was – 828. He took 18 minutes off his course record and went 810 and lost. Mark Allen beat Dave Scott on the greatest day that Dave ever had. And that's what a champion is all about. Wow. So that's wow. why we did these for the 15th anniversary of Iron War. And um, one of my, we did 500 of these, and I've still got a few of them at the house. <laughs> these are autographed by both the boys. Collector's item, baby. No, awesome. Hey, awesome. look, couldn't, couldn't finish on a better wrap than that. Uh, love you guys. Uh, you know, look forward to speaking to you again soon. And for those that are out there, hey, give us some feedback and tune in next time. Uh, but appreciate everyone. Okay, Boomer out from Denver, San Diego, and Sydney, Australia, three of the best cities in the world.